Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. We begin with the reading. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I... I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. So begins the conversation between Alice and the caterpillar in Lewis Carroll's novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Perhaps some of you have memories with this book from your own earlier years, or maybe you recognize that conversation from the animated Disney movie. Alice's response to the caterpillar reveals her sense of disorientation with where she is at the moment. She knew who she was when she got up that morning, but a lot had changed already during that day. She found herself in Wonderland. The rules of life as she thought she knew them had all changed. She's now three inches tall, and she's talking with a caterpillar. We certainly can't blame her for not being sure how to answer that question, who are you? And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we may feel quite a bit like Alice. After all, how can we sum up in just a few words all that we think, all that we hope, all that we feel, all that we have been, all that we hope to one day become? How do we even sort through these things for ourselves? What is it that makes us who we are? Does who I am come from something inside of me or does it come from outside of me? Does it come from what I do? Does it come from some sort of inherent qualities that I possess? Is who I am determined by the groups of people that I spend my time with? Is it determined by where I grow up or where I live? Is it always the same or does who I am change over time? Is it up to me to decide or to discover who I am? And if so, is that liberating Or is that terrifying? Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? As human beings, especially human beings living in our present culture, we are on a quest to discover or to create who we truly are. This quest, however liberating or however exhilarating it may seem at times, in the long run may tend to leave us more confused, more empty, and perhaps even more at a loss to answer that nagging question, who are you? As we consider this question this morning and this human quest for identity, as we reflect on what Scripture has to say about our identity, let us allow the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 to be our guide. 
we will first acknowledge and exegete our culture, looking at the way that our culture and the world around us approaches this topic of identity. We will then see how easy it is for us to become trapped and ensnared by the wrong kind of identity. And finally, we will compare this human identity to the identity that Jesus Christ offers to us, ultimately the identity that we were created for. In the end, what we need, what our hearts long for, is an identity that comes not from ourselves, not from other people, but from knowing Jesus Christ. But first, let's do a little bit of cultural exegesis. Let's take a look at the world that we live in. It's important for us to consider the identity that we chase. The topic of identity carries a huge amount of weight in our culture and in our day-to-day lives. All around us, we are presented with the narrative that it is up to us to decide or to discover who we truly are. We are urged to be true to ourselves, to follow our heart. We're told, just do you. And as long as my efforts to be true to myself don't get in the way or interfere with your efforts to be true to yourself, then I am told that I can be anyone I wish to be and I can do anything that I desire to do that brings me satisfaction and fulfillment. In many respects, this modern quest for identity is at its core a quest for happiness. This this modern notion of the self, and indeed this is a modern notion because this way of viewing the world and life has only been around for a short time, even though it has been centuries in the making, this modern view of the self is wrapped up with an approach to life that prizes personal happiness as one of the highest ideals. Christian scholar Carl Truman, in his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, writes this. He says, Another way of approaching the matter of the self is to ask what it is that makes a person happy. The answer I give speaks eloquently of what I consider the purpose of life and the meaning of happiness. In sum, it is indicative of how I think of myself. Now, now how does this quest for identity, geared at finding personal happiness, how does this play out in our lives? Well, it often begins with the task of finding something, finding what makes you tick, finding your passion, finding an activity or a skill or a niche for you to express yourself. Lutheran scholar Andrew Root, who has written a lot on how this plays out in youth culture in our day, he calls this particular way of expressing yourself a person's, wait for it, a person's thing. Profound, right? Well, Andrew Root writes this. He says, your thing and then he provides options, basketball, piano, jujitsu, hunting with your family, art, making YouTube videos, beatboxing, or graffitiing walls, whatever it may be for some of us or all of us. This thing is a station in the sense of being a broadcast mechanism in which you relay to the world, this is me. Root goes on to say this. He says, your thing is what you're about. And to represent means to state your identity through your thing. And what you're about is believed to essentially be 
who you are. Now, this process of finding or broadcasting who you are can cause a person to become extremely busy. Now, this is one of the reasons why many young people are busy with many activities, trying out for every sports team, getting involved in every musical group, taking on new hobbies, joining clubs or organizations. But it's not just young people. For people of all ages, there are no shortages of activities to take up or of groups to belong to. In fact, in our world, everything is at your fingertips. You could try one thing after another after another until you find whatever it is that is your thing. And then once you find your thing, you go all in. Now, your thing could be playing sports. It could be soccer, golf, ultimate frisbee. It could be watching sports for some of us. It could be doing fantasy sports leagues. Your thing could be music or the arts. It could even be fitness or exercise or health. It could be fashion or home decorating. It could be learning and education. It can be fixing things. Among my fellow millennials, woodworking and blacksmithing have become common things to pursue. In fact, your thing could even be the church. But whatever your thing is, There are always more groups to join, there are more competitions to enter, there are more performances to give, and there are more causes to promote. Now, this is where you stop and say, wait a minute, Andrew, isn't this just another way of talking about hobbies? Aren't hobbies good things? Andrew, are you sure that you're not just picking on us for having hobbies because you're a pastor and you've got three small kids and therefore you don't have any hobbies, so maybe you're a little bitter about that? To which I reply, touche. Now, those are, those are great questions. And it's important to be clear on, on where the line is and what makes the difference here. A hobby is something enjoyable, Hopefully, although I'm not so sure how enjoyable it is for those of you who punish yourselves on the golf course or out fishing at certain times, uh, but I'm sure it's enjoyable at moments. It's an enjoyable way to pass the time. But a hobby or another activity can go beyond merely being a hobby, and it can become a thing when we see it not just as something that we do, but when we see it as integral to who we are. When you use your hobby to broadcast to the world, this is me, this is who I am, then your hobby has been upgraded to thing status. And, and you may ask, well, what about callings? What about something that God has called me to do? What about a particular ministry? What's so bad about that? Well, that's a great question as well. God does call us to do things, but even something holy, even a calling to serve Him can become a thing when our focus is no longer on who has called us to do it, but rather our identity is coming from what we feel called to do. And the deeper that we go into our things, the more we can capitalize on the opportunity that they offer to say to ourselves and to the world, hey, this is me, this is who I am. And that brings us to an important but also kind of paradoxical aspect of this quest for identity. On the one hand, it's a personal quest, right? We discover who we are. It is up to us to follow our hearts. Other people don't get to pick that for us. But 
when we broadcast our identity to others, we need them to validate that identity, right? If we say to the world, this is who I am, we want to hear back from the world, yes, that is who you are, and we accept that. We approve of you. Keep doing what you're doing. And that's why Carl Truman writes this. He says, to have an identity means that I am being acknowledged by others. Andrew Root fleshes this out a little bit more, saying, we can only state, this is me, if there are others to hear it, recognize it, and respond. I may have the freedom to construct my own identity, finding my this is me through my own internal feel, but at some point I only can really truly have an identity by broadcasting it to others who in turn recognize it. So, So to summarize here, each person is on a quest to find their thing in order to broadcast to the world their identity, this is me, in order that they will be recognized and affirmed by other people, which will lead to fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction. That's how it works on paper, right? But this brings us to the question of what are we ultimately looking for? What are the longings of the human heart that this quest for identity reveals within us? What am I searching for in my search for identity? What are you searching for? Maybe we're looking for a sense of belonging or for a place where we truly feel like we can belong. Maybe we're searching for acceptance or approval from other people. After all, if other people can accept us and approve of us, then then maybe we can accept ourselves. For many of us, perhaps it is a desire simply to be known, for other people to see us, to understand us, to acknowledge, yes, this is you. Maybe we simply want to have a clear sense of who we are. Maybe we want to have a a clear idea of what we're supposed to be doing so we don't feel like we're just wandering in circles over and over. Or maybe it's something else. But for every person who is on a quest to find or to craft an identity, there is a desire, there is a hope or a hurt or a burden or a longing. A longing for something that is real, for something that is precious, for something that will last. But sadly, this vast menu of identity options that is out there in front of us simply is not up to the task of addressing these longings of our hearts in a meaningful or lasting way. And that is due largely because of the precarious nature of how we build these identities. Andrew Root sums up the challenge here. He says, we are to be whoever we feel we most authentically are. We're to listen to no outside authority imposing on us what it means for us individually to be human. And yet, he points out, to have this individually constructed identity, we desperately need others to recognize it. Our authenticity is dependent on others' attention, comment, and overall acknowledgement. Now, if our identity comes from inside us, but it's confirmed by those around us, that gives the people in our lives a tremendous amount of power over us. It, it rests on us to come up with an identity that others will affirm, and that's overwhelming and exhausting enough. But then it rests on other people to validate us, and that alone presents plenty of opportunities for this to all unravel. 
But on top of that, this search for happiness, for meaning, for value, for validation through our identity can break down in all sorts of other ways. What happens, for example, when you can't find your thing, or you can't do your thing anymore, or you run into someone else who is better at your thing than you are? What happens if your thing is your job and then you retire? What happens if your thing is your kids and then they grow up and move away? What if your thing is wrapped up in your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend and then you let them down or they let you down or for various circumstances they are no longer in your life? What happens when other people don't recognize or don't appreciate your sense of identity? What happens when you work hard, when you go through these motions, when you find that affirmation and acceptance from others, but you're still not happy? Does that mean that you did it wrong, that you missed a step, that you need to go back and do it again? Does it mean you have to move on and try to find a different thing and a different identity until you finally find that sense of happiness that you're looking for? At the end of the day, this quest for identity has a hard time staying on its tracks because it depends on our performance. It depends on the affirmation of other people. It depends on the pursuit of a sustained level of happiness, which by nature is fleeting and temporary. So this approach to life is demanding and it is fragile and sadly it leaves us empty. And that's just when we evaluate it from a purely human point of view. As we turn our attention now to the words of our passage for today, Scripture pulls back the veil to reveal even deeper problems that surface when we try to find our identity apart from God's story and apart from God's work in our lives. Apart from God's grace, we end up with an identity that traps us. That's because our personal quest for an identity does not happen in a vacuum. We are not merely physical, mental, or emotional beings. We are also spiritual beings. So what happens spiritually when we are immersed in this quest for self-definition and self-actualization on our own terms? What is really happening within us when we do this? Paul holds no punches here, writing to the Christians in Ephesus about the time in their lives before they knew Jesus. How does Paul describe their identity? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, that's pretty blunt, Paul. He says, not sick, not lost, not wounded or injured, dead. Paul is saying that apart from Jesus, while we think that our identity may be about what we do, the choices that we make, the things that we do to express ourselves, all of these efforts to construct an identity on our own terms are like putting makeup and fancy clothes on a corpse. We may be a pretty corpse, but at the end of the day, that's still what we are. If we're attempting to live apart from Jesus, Paul says we are not really living. Though we may be going through the outward motions, the most important part of us is dead. We are spiritually dead. So that's our identity outside of Jesus. But what are the marks of this identity? How does this identity express itself? 
When we read verse 1 together with verses 2 and 3, here's what Paul tells us. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And the Greek verb here is walk, in which you used to walk, indicating a way of life, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, verse 3, also lived among them at one time. Now, this is important here. Paul is including himself and the apostles in this group because his purpose here is not to point the finger at them. His purpose is not to shame them. His purpose is simply to be honest and crystal clear about how serious the human condition is apart from God's work in our lives. So how does this lead us to live? Continuing on, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, Paul says, we were, again, that we, not you, but we were by nature deserving of wrath. So to the believers in his day and to us today, Paul is saying, you may think that apart from Jesus, you are blazing your own trail to a satisfying and meaningful life, but here's what's actually happening. You're stuck in the wrong kind of identity, and it's leading you to the wrong kind of life, one that is dominated by these cruel masters. You're not forging your own autonomous identity. Instead, these masters are co-opting you for their purposes. Well, what are the three masters that Paul identifies in this passage? First, he says there's the world. In verse 2, to to have a, a more literal translation from the original Greek, Paul says that you walked according to the age of this world. Now, now this wording for world is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 2, where it's translated usually in English, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Uh, But Paul's actual wording is not to place yourself in the same pattern or schematic as as this age. And again, later in Ephesians 6.12, he says something similar when he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, among other things, the world rulers of this present darkness. So so when Paul talks about the world in this way, what exactly does he mean by world? Well, he's he's not talking about the place. He's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about all the people in the world. He's referring to something that's impersonal but still affects our lives. He's referring to the current fallen sinful world order, the current paradigm or way of doing things, to, to the brokenness that has impacted all human societies, all enterprises, and all institutions. Paul is reminding us that that brokenness is now so baked into the cake of life in this fallen world that it resides not only in human hearts, but in the very pattern of this present dark age of life in a broken world. Second, Paul says in verse 2 that the believers also used to walk, literally, according to the ruling one of the dominion of the air, of the spirit that is energetically at work within the sons of disobedience. The original Greek is always a little bit more dramatic in how Paul says things. The sons of disobedience, the sons of anarchy have nothing on the sons of disobedience, according to Paul. Now, what's he getting at here? We understand this to refer to Satan, to the devil, to the accuser, and the demonic forces that are 
allied with him. It's sobering for us to read Paul's warning here that that these forces are energetically at work among the fallen human race. And third, Paul says we all used to live in the desires of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and following its impulses. Now, again, by flesh, Paul is not referring to our physical bodies. Paul is not saying that the physical is bad and we want to escape our bodies and just go be spirits off in heaven somewhere. That's what the ancient Gnostic heretics taught, and that heresy is still alive and well in many circles today, but that's not what Paul is teaching. Instead, Paul is referring to the fallen sinful nature that each person possesses. He says that we exist in a state of constant civil war within ourselves, between our self-oriented desires and the God and others-oriented way that we're called to live. So Paul is telling us that unless Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives, these three cruel masters will infiltrate the power vacuum left by Jesus' absence, and they are going to rule over us instead. And they'll give us just enough of an illusion of control, just enough of a pleasure hit to think that we're in charge when really we are totally under their control. Now, this passage is unique in the sense that it gathers these three masters together in one lineup, in one convenient uh, place. But we see these three masters throughout Scripture. The Bible repeatedly warns us against the dangers posed by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. And Christian writers throughout history have talked about this too. The 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, The principal fight of the Christian is with surprise, surprise, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are their, meaning Christians, never dying foes. Our foes are not other people. They're not the people around us. Our foes are these spiritual forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ryle goes on to say, these are the three chief enemies against whom the Christian must wage war. Unless they get the victory over these three, all other victories are useless and vain. If they, again Christians, had a nature like an angel and were not a fallen creature, the warfare would not be so essential. But, and this is the heart of the matter, with a corrupt heart, a busy devil, and an ensnaring world, the Christian must either fight or be lost. Now, we need to recognize the importance of all three of these because we tend to emphasize just one or maybe two and neglect the rest. If we forget that the flesh is our foe, we are going to neglect the care of our own souls. We will allow our sinful desires and our habits that are steeped in brokenness to go unchallenged in our lives. And so our individual sins and temptations like greed, lust, pride, prejudice, sloth, and many other things will end up hampering the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and will hamstring our efforts to become holy and blameless like Jesus. But if we focus only on the flesh, then our wheels are going to spin without traction because we're going to try to address the individual sins of our hearts without looking at the external factors, uh, both systemic and spiritual, that are feeding and reinforcing our individual heart sins. Now, if we forget that the world is our foe, we may tend to fixate on the darkness within us and neglect the darkness that is around us. 
And so the sins and the brokenness that are embedded in our culture, in our institutions, in our very ways of life, will end up influencing us in ways that we're not paying attention to. That makes us even more vulnerable to them. And so structural and societal sins like greed and consumerism, like lust and sexual narcissism, like pride and arrogance, like prejudice and racism, like sloth and laziness, these things will remain unchallenged around us in our world, and they will retain their chokehold on our cultures. But if we focus only on the world, we end up hitting a dead end by trying to change the world without changing ourselves. And so we may end up depending too much on human solutions and cut ourselves off from our true spiritual power. Now, if we forget that the devil is our foe, we will fixate on the threats that we can see, and we will be vulnerable to the threats that we cannot see. We will be tempted to fight earthly battles when the real battlefield is a spiritual one. We may be tempted to neglect the role of prayer and fasting. We may grow discouraged when we encounter opposition that we cannot account for in purely human terms. We will forget that some sins, such as sexual bondage, such as racial injustice, such as widespread greed and rampant pride, are so resilient because they have demonic backing. But if we focus only on fighting the devil, if we're looking for the demon hiding behind every bush, then we run the risk of neglecting the very real human factors that are at play. Because not every sin is the result of demonic influence. We are quite capable of making our own mistakes by ourselves. Fallen individuals can create a fallen world order even without a demonic nudge. And a fallen world order can help keep fallen individuals in profound bondage to the flesh, even without the devil and his minions making things worse. So as Paul and as Christians in every age have warned us, we must be on our guard. We must fight a spiritual war on all three fronts. As is often the case in war, the threat that we ignore becomes the threat that we are most vulnerable to and most powerless against. And that's why the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us of our need, but also points us to our source of hope. It says, by ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, it says, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. J.C. Ryle, who we quoted a moment ago saying that we must fight against these things or be lost, also comes full circle and concludes, the world, the flesh, and the devil can never overwhelm the weakest person who sets their face towards God. Great is the power that is against us, but greater is the power that is for us. This reminds us of where our hope is found in Christ alone. In him we find a new identity because the identity that we receive from him is far greater than any identity that we could forge on our own. 
apart from Christ. Our identity is that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But Paul goes on to say in verses 4 through 6, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So what are the marks of this new identity? According to these verses, who are we now? The reality of who we are in Christ is so vast and so mind-blowing that Paul has to make up his very own Greek words just to describe it. First, he says, we are people who are alive. Paul makes up a new verb in order to say that God made us alive together with Christ And so in our old identity, we were the spiritual walking dead, but now we are alive. We are truly alive in Jesus. Second, Paul says, we are people who are raised up. Paul says that God raised us up together with Christ. Before, we were children of wrath, but now we have been elevated to Jesus' heavenly majesty. Third, Paul says, we are people who are seated together with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Now, physically speaking, we're still here on earth, but Paul is telling us that our spiritual status in the eyes of God is the same as if we were sitting down next to him in the heavenly throne room. Now, think about it. Who gets to sit down in the heavenly throne room in the place where angels and heavenly beings are forever bowing down, saying, holy, holy, holy? What a mind-blowing thing that Paul says, this is who we are in Christ, that we are seated by God's side in this place of glory and majesty. And so what do all three of these traits have in common, that they are with Christ? Paul creates these verbs that have the idea of being treated this way, together with Christ, wrapped up in the very word. You cannot express these ideas without expressing the fact that we are in Christ and with Christ. So what is the most important, most overarching truth of our new identity? It is an identity that is rooted in, that is built upon, that is saturated with, that is wrapped up in, accomplished by, and pointed toward Jesus Christ. So that's a description of our new identity. But... Why do we have this new identity? Why has God done all of this? Paul answers this question in two ways in verse 4 and verse 7. Back at verse 4, which is the turning point of the passage, Paul said, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Again, Paul is always more dramatic in Greek, which literally says, But God. And he could stop right there. That's the turning point of our whole situation. But God. God. He continues, but God, being rich in mercy on account of the great love with which he loved us, and then comes, made us alive together with, raised us up together with, and seated us together with Christ. But the reason for God's actions is God himself. Why has God rescued us and given us this new identity? Because he is rich in mercy. That's who he is because of his great love for us. But this is not just a general abstract love. This is a specific love because of the great love with which he loved us. This is already directed to us, already given to us. He loved us even before he raised us up. That's who God is. So why has God given you this new identity? Because he already loved you. 
with this tremendous overflowing love that only a mercy-rich God can bestow. But there's more. Verse 7 says he also did this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So again, there are these riches, riches of grace and kindness. God wants to show off his grace forever in the coming ages, no longer in this present evil age, but in a new and glorious age when he will eternally express his kindness to us in Christ and for the glory of Christ. Now God's purpose here is to exalt Jesus and to shower us with love. So our identity therefore ends with the glory of God. But how does it begin? It begins with the grace of God. Verses 8 and 9, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul makes it abundantly clear that our identity in Christ and all that comes with it don't come from us, but they come from God. From beginning to end, it is by grace that we're saved through faith. Now, that's amazing in and of itself. But then he goes even further, saying that this, and scholars are divided, but this probably refers to the faith itself, that this faith doesn't even come from us. Our very faith in Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Our faith and the grace that we receive aren't the result of our own efforts. We cannot boast in them. We cannot take credit in them. This is all from God, all because of his generosity all because of his love. John Stott sums it up like this, saying, Thus, everything we have and are in Christ both comes from God and returns to God. It begins in his will and it ends in his glory, for this is where everything begins and ends. And as if the glorious riches of this passage were not already enough, Paul concludes our passage today with one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture, showing us the grace of God yet again given to us in the identity that we were made for. So what is the conclusion of the matter? Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this word, this word handiwork is, is a Greek word poema, meaning poem or masterpiece. There are lots of different ways to define a masterpiece, but it includes a work of outstanding artistry and skill, a creation that is worthy of critical praise, especially if it is considered to be one of the greatest works that that master craftsman has achieved. And masterpieces can come in many forms. If you've been wondering what's in the box I have here, I've got a box full of masterpieces. We see masterpieces in the form of great literature, works like The Three Musketeers, A Tale of Two Cities, Moby Dick, although some people who read it say it's not really much of a masterpiece. I'll let you decide. War and Peace is a masterpiece. I consider The Lord of the Rings to be a masterpiece. But it's not just literature. Masterpiece can also be in music, like the works of Mozart, uh, like the Calvin College Orchestra, I mean, Wolf, uh, Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, like Gustav Holst, Handel's Messiah, and many others. Masterpieces can also come in art and paintings. I can't afford the real Mona Lisa, but I can afford this postcard. That's a masterpiece. They wouldn't let me get up and touch the wall of the Sistine Chapel, but I got a postcard there too. This is another masterpiece. 
And masterpieces can be documents. We might consider the Declaration of Independence to be a masterpiece. Nicolas Cage was really kind to let me borrow this today. <laughs> and the Gettysburg Address is an oratorical masterpiece. And, and I consider John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion to be a theological masterpiece. And this is the biggest one I could afford. The Eiffel Tower is an architectural masterpiece. And there are masterpieces in so many areas of life. And this is just a small fraction of the vast human achievement that is out there. But what's on this pedestal alone represents tremendous human creativity, innovation, and artistry. But yet, what is sitting on this pedestal pales in comparison to the richness and majesty of what is sitting in your chair right now. Because as great as these masterpieces are, you are the real masterpiece. The God who created the stars, who shaped the mountains, who spread out the oceans, who carved out the Grand Canyon, doesn't consider those his masterpiece. He considers you his masterpiece. Oh, that we could see ourselves that way, the way that God sees us. We could spend time getting to read and listen to and know these things, but far better to spend time investing in God's masterpieces that are walking and living and moving around us each and every day. Because we are God's masterpiece. So what does this mean for our identity? This changes everything in our lives. It means that we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves to any person. We don't have to prove ourselves to God because he loved us unconditionally and he made us alive through Jesus Christ. It means that you don't have to find your thing. You don't have to win other people's approval. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be talented enough. You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to be anything enough. All you have to do is cling to Jesus Christ this means that you are treasured by God. A few weeks ago at the EPC General Assembly, we heard Pastor Aaron and I heard from Andrew Brunson, who many of you had prayed for for years when he was imprisoned as a missionary in Turkey. And Andrew Brunson was thanking Jeff Jeremiah, who just retired as our stated clerk for all the ways that Jeff supported him during that time and prayed for him and mobilized thousands of believers to be on their knees in prayer for Jeff. And the thing that the thing that Andrew Brunson said was, I couldn't believe that you would do all of this for someone that you didn't even know. And Jeff replied, Andrew, don't take this the wrong way, but it didn't matter that I didn't know you. All that matters is that you were one of ours. And that's how God sees you. It doesn't matter how good you are at things. It doesn't matter how put together your life is. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you can quote. It doesn't matter what you have done, what your past is, or where you have tried to find your identity in ways that have been a dead end. All that matters is that you are His. So allow yourself to live with that boldness, to live with that confidence, to rest in what Jesus has done for you. Allow yourself to discover one day at a time more and more of the masterpiece that God has created you to be as you walk in his ways, as you follow him, as you know him more. Be at peace 
You were created to do, yes, but first you must simply be. Be God's child. Be the masterpiece that you were made to be. Open your heart and your life to Christ's work. Rest in the 